please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Psalm number 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I have one chief aim in this sermon, which is to extol the virtue and beauty and pleasure of the dwelling place of God, as the psalmist has put forth so excellently, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And to apply that to our lives today as those who are in the church, which is the dwelling place of God, the Holy Spirit, in whom Christ walks among the lampstands and ministers and trims the wicks. And it is my opinion that this psalm is simply a prophecy. It's, it's my reading of this, of this psalm that this is a prophecy primarily concerning the future church, not about the tabernacle, which the psalmist was familiar with. I want to look first at the psalmist as how, in, in how he presents his desire to be in the dwelling place of God. That he has a longing desire. He wishes to return to a place that he remembers quite well. Then I want to look at the sustaining power that's presented. That God is the one who causes strength to be given to those who make pilgrimage within Israel. I want to look at the benediction of God as he pours out blessing upon his people, not only from the tabernacle, but to those who would be coming to the tabernacle and returning home from the tabernacle or temple. And then finally, I want to look at how this passage is not just a prophecy about the church, it is a prophecy about Christ himself as he is the true temple and we, the New Testament says, are being built upon him into a new house, a new temple in which God dwells. 
So at the beginning of this psalm, the psalmist, who we may not exactly know who it is, it's either, it's possibly David, there's a hint of that here in a few minutes. We'll look at at what verse kind of indicates potentially something that might suggest it to be David. But the point of this psalm is that the psalmist is estranged from the house of God. He longs to return to a place that he has been. And he says a a number of things that give our, our Western mind some trouble. That there's a longing, an expression of a memory. When you long for something, you long for that which can be conceived of. You, you don't desire things that you can't have. For, for example, the reason we have hunger is because we've eaten food, right? The reason we are longing to return, I am longing to return to, to bed, is because I need it. I have, a, I have a need for that thing. I have an appetite for that thing. But I not only have an appetite, I have a memory, C.S. Lewis, in fact, uses this logic as the reason that we know there is a wonderful eternal existence with God because we have an appetite for unlimited joy. His reasoning is that we can't have an appetite for something that can't be satisfied. And so this psalmist, as he expresses longing to return to this place called the house of God or the courts of the Lord, the dwelling place of God had been a place in which the psalmist had dwelt himself, that he had been invited, as it were, into the house of God, that God had granted him entry as a guest and as a friend. And so he remembers this, expressing it as a longing, something that is not a fleeting desire. It is a persistent need. It is not like an appetite for food which is so easily satisfied and then returns. No, his longing to be in the dwelling place of God, as we'll see in a few minutes through the rest of the psalm, is not a longing to just go and be there and come back. It's a longing for something much more, which in my opinion, throughout this entire psalm, it always is hinting to a much greater fulfillment so that we cannot read the psalmist talking about the physical earthly temple or tabernacle alone. He's suggesting something far greater than it. He experiences God himself. He says, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. That when he comes into the temple, there's an experience. It's not just being surrounded by a beautiful building. I think it's so timely that we look at this psalm given the future of our church congregation here. When we go to 1645 Spalding, it will be more beautiful, but the drywall and the stucco and the projector and the electrical wires aren't the point. The concrete and the asphalt, it's not the point. The point that the psalmist is saying, he doesn't want to be by the cedar and the handiwork And he doesn't even get to go into certain places in the tabernacle. His point is that when he comes into the tabernacle, he gets to meet with God. He tastes and he sees what God is like because he meets with God in God's house. As he pours out his heart to God, he then begins to express some angst about uh, what he's, he's envious and jealous of this next verse, which is quite perplexing 
as he expresses some envy for these creatures. We hear in these verses a memory, a memory not just of a solical experience, but as he says, my heart and flesh. Now, heart could still be poetic. Amen? Amen. Flesh, it's very hard for that to be poetic. (laughs) David is saying there's something he has experienced in his body in God's tabernacle. You see, our world is divided into two camps, those who reject the physical world and those who are redeemed in Christ who accept the physical world as sanctified by their faith. Some Christians who have drifted off into error dismiss the importance of the physical world. We heard a wonderful testimony this morning at the start of service of the power of Christ to impact a physical body. Some Christians divorce physical and spiritual, saying physical is low and bad, and spiritual is is good. And brothers and sisters, there are many things that are spiritual that are horrific, horrific. They're horrifying. They are terrible to practice. All forms of occultism and seances and attempts to manipulate the future, all of these are quote-unquote spiritual, and yet they are evil. The world is not as the Gnostic heresy said, which is physical bad, spiritual good. God made all. That is what we confess in the creed, is it not? He's the maker of all things seen and unseen. God is the one who has fashioned both the physical and the spiritual world. And in God's tabernacle, this psalmist experiences the union, the wonderful union of the God who is spirit, who makes himself known to his creatures. This, I believe, was set forth at the very beginning of the scriptures that when God comes to meet with Adam and Eve after they've taken from the garden, that that was not the first time when God had come into the garden and met with them. And he spent time, it's my conjecture, from various parts of Genesis 1 through 3, that he spent time in the garden and he fellowshiped with his creatures. And that is what the psalmist is longing for. He's longing for a place that God has set apart, that he might be known in. And so, reflecting upon the benefit and remembering what he has tasted, he then expresses envy against this creature. This longing brings forth a metaphor. And this next verse, verse 3, which is quite perplexing, is actually the king, what I believe to be the King David, the psalmist, making an an appeal or an analogy to the injustice, the seeming injustice of what he is experiencing here. He says, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Now, I do not believe the psalmist is saying that literally there is a bird in the tabernacle laying their egg on the steps of the holy place. The reason for this is that sometimes prepositions in the scripture are hard to translate well. What I believe to be taking place is that there was a reception in the tabernacle and temple complex of the creatures. That is to say, the temple and tabernacle were adorned with pictures 
that gave an indication of a garden sanctuary. If you remember, in the temple, it's described that certain pillars would be woven like pomegranate trees. And there would be other forms of flowers and fruits. Uh, If you remember, the lampstand itself was like an almond bush with flowers and cups for the the oil to be put in. and, And it looked like a little almond tree. I think what what the psalmist is getting to is he's saying, when I come into the tabernacle and the temple, it's like I get to return to the garden. That's what he's doing when he's saying, even the birds get to come, but, but I can't come right now. I'm, I'm not near the tabernacle. There were various times in the life of Israel where there was a warring faction such that parts of Israel could not get to the tabernacle. And other times in the life of Israel, the tabernacle or temple were completely removed. Now, we don't know exactly who, although I think it might be David, we don't know exactly who or when this psalm was written. However, to me, this suggests a sort of envy, but it's also a hearkening back. He's explaining the warm reception that the creatures have before their God in God's house. He goes on to say, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. While this may sound extremely perplexing, I think the psalmist is merely contrasting his plight with the privilege that the bird, the swallow, and the the sparrow that he he names are, are having. That, that he cannot be, for some reason we don't know, he cannot be in God's tabernacle, but the birds have come and they get to live near the tabernacle and near the temple. Matthew Henry's commentary, in fact, is a quite helpful guide. Uh, I remember, I believe it's Soren Kierkegaard who says the most valuable portions of scripture are the most perplexing. And Matthew Henry in his commentary says this, David supposes, he takes the psalmist to be David, David supposes that there were birds in the buildings about the courts, around the courts of God's house, and wishes himself with them. He would rather live in a bird's nest nigh God's altars than in a palace at a distance from them. The reason I think Matthew Henry is right on the money is what will come later when the psalmist says, I would rather be a doorkeeper. It, it makes sense with the context of the rest of the psalm. The psalmist is not really caring whether there's actual birds in the Holy of Holies at the very altar of God, but rather he's saying, I would rather be like a bird who makes its nest in the crook of a corner or up underneath an eave. That's, that would be a better home for me than if I live in my palace apart from God's house. The psalmist does not want to be like one who goes into the tabernacle and then leaves, but rather he says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. The psalmist is wanting to be like Joshua of old. If you remember in Exodus 33, it says that Moses would go into the tabernacle and speak to God. He would have a conversation with God in a friendly manner. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who you know in an official capacity, but have then become friends with? The conversation changes, doesn't it? When the person is giving an address or an official response or or speaking in their capacity, they use a sort of language that communicates 
for a specific purpose. But then when you talk to them afterwards, one-on-one, the, the conversation changes, doesn't it? That's what Moses would receive. And Joshua was so desirous of this, Joshua, Moses' servant, he would stand at the entrance to the tabernacle and he would not depart. Moses would go in and, and then have to go to the people. Joshua was not charged with addressing the people. He simply got to stay at the tabernacle. It's my belief that the reason Joshua stayed at the tabernacle was not hoping to curry favor with Yahweh. He wasn't hoping to earn the next spot in leading the nation. He was staying at the tabernacle because he liked being there. He enjoyed being there. That when he was at the entrance to the tabernacle, he experienced God and it was blessing to him. It was a benefit to Joshua. And so David or the psalmist says, blessed are they. They're happy, those who get to dwell in your house. But just as we saw last week in Solomon's prayer about the dedication of the temple, so also this week in this psalm, we see things that suggest a much greater fulfillment than what could have taken place in the psalmist's day. In those days, if it is the day of David, there was a place in which non-Levites could come in and sing to the Lord. But in the tabernacle, only Levites could come in. And interestingly, they only came in for specific service. If you remember the Gospels, Zechariah is chosen to enter the temple and offer incense, but he doesn't stay there. He has to come out. The psalmist is saying, however, blessed are those who Dwell in your house, for they're ever praising you. Not going in and coming out, not praising you today and going off to work tomorrow. He says something that is much requires a much grander fulfillment than what is literally possible, possible in, in actuality in his day. At most, anywhere during the time of David's tent, which he established, which was separate from the tabernacle, or if you include both of them, perhaps a few dozen, maybe a few hundred people could ever be in David's tent or in the tabernacle. And when the temple is built, there are places where men and women can come, and even some places where the Gentiles can come outside of the doors of the temple. But no one was allowed to stay there. And even if they were allowed to stay there, it certainly was not big enough for the entire nation. If God's people, who are blessed by God, are to be blessed as they dwell in God's house, then clearly the temple is going to have to expand to a massive degree. They're going, the temple of God is going to have to expand to include all of God's people. And that's what I think the psalmist is saying. He's making a observation that is prophetic in nature, that he's seeing something. All those who go to God's temple are happy. I myself, my heart and my flesh sing for joy in God's temple. And oh, that all God's people would be blessed in his temple but we know it is not the case. Not the entire nation cannot dwell in the temple. It is simply not big enough. 
The psalmist then continues to extol the virtue and the benefit of those who come to the tabernacle and meet with God in his house. He says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Now again, this is a very perplexing passage because when we travel, we don't travel in our hearts, we travel physically, right? There's two ways that you could take this passage, and I think both are equally helpful. Perhaps the psalmist is saying that the people who are dwelling or going to the tabernacle know the way by heart. That is to say, they've been there so often, they've been faithful to obey God's commandments that they remember the way. They don't need to be instructed, and therefore they're blessed. The reason he might be saying that, that they remember the way, they've learned it by heart, is that God had commanded all of Israel to send each one of their males three times a year to the place where he would choose. Before they entered the land, God gave them a law which said at these particular sacrifices and festivals, you must go up to Jerusalem or the place that your Lord will choose and you must present yourselves before God. God requires his people to come before him. And those who don't arrive are going to be cut off from the people. The other potential that the psalmist might be suggesting, and I think that this is equally valid, is that there is an avenue in their heart to God's temple. That again, understanding, just as he said in the prior verse, blessed are those who dwell in your house, the meaning demands a understanding that is greater than the physical temple, perhaps the psalmist is saying is that blessed are those who don't have to make pilgrimage, but they can get there through devotion, through their heart. I think both of these readings are appropriate, and both of them make sense given the the future fulfillment of what the psalmist is saying. A true Israelite, whether it is they know their way by heart or whether they can travel to the temple in their heart, either way, the true Israelite is not the Israelite who makes physical pilgrimage to Zion alone. The true Israelite is the Israelite who has his strength in Yahweh, who has his source of joy and love and devotion in Yahweh. You can go to the pilgrimage. You can go on the journey, but be far away in your heart. And the psalmist is saying, blessed are those whose heart accords with being in Zion, who love to be with God. Therefore, for those that love God and delight in him, God shows himself strong. Verse 6, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. We have looked in weeks past at various psalms that are songs of ascents. And the song of ascent is a song that would be sung by the people of Israel as they were going up to the house of God. So imagine yourself, you're in Galilee and you are going with your tribe. We all get together and we go for a walk for a few days and we are wanting to encourage each other as we are going up to the house of the Lord. And we would take one of these psalms 
and we would sing it to strengthen one another, to, to steal our resolve such that we would not faint in the journey. But interestingly here, whether it is going on a journey to the temple in your heart or going to the temple with a great affection for God's presence, either one, this has a great impact. Whether it is a spiritual journey or whether it is a physical journey, God promises to bless these people in the valley of Baca, which is also translated as weeping. He promises to sustain these people on the journey. If you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan is traveling and he, uh, excuse me, the, the Israelite is traveling and he is attacked by robbers on the road. And a number of people pass by him. Now, to us, that may not be a very realistic scenario. For most of us, we get in our car, we then arrive at the place we're going to in a very short time. But in their day, traveling, even to the temple, was something that was extremely fraught with danger. For certain pilgrims, certainly not all of the pilgrims, certain pilgrims had to travel through what the psalmist is calling the Valley of Baca. And the reason it is called Baca, also translated weeping, is because it was a place of death. We have a place in our country called Death Valley. It's a place in California where even with all of the technology, all of the modern affordances of very reliable vehicles, there are certain times of the year and specific times of the day where the tour guides will not take people into Death Valley. The reason being is even with a wonderful car with a, a lot of water, it is very likely that you will not make it out of the valley. It's called Death Valley for a reason. People who go into it do not usually come out of it. This place, Baca, is called Baca because it was a place of sorrow. It was a place through which journeys became extremely perilous. But look at the promise. God promises to take this valley of Baca, which sounds like a desert, and he transforms that desert into something that is beautiful and wonderful for his people. This is God's doing. He is going to cause them to go through a desert, and as they're traveling, it becomes something else. Instead of a desert, it becomes a place of pools. If you haven't ever seen this, there's an amazing effect on hot days where the ground is so dry that it's cracked, that when you put water into even maybe you know, like a, sand, a playground or a sand pit, the water just quickly falls. The reason being is there's no groundwater to uphold it. The fact that the psalmist is saying there's going to be pools in the desert means God's not going to provide a little water. God's going to provide a lot of water in this valley. He's going to be able to quench the thirst of his people as they go on the journey. And so as we tease out and, and we explore the words of this psalmist, we find God actually is not just aware of the problem of his people as they journey to his house. He is able to sustain them on the way. I love this promise that comes next. Though the journey is long, though the pilgrimage is extremely dangerous, God says that each one appears before him. 
It is not as if there are 10 who go through the journey and one makes it to the temple. Here, the psalmist is saying that there is a journey on which God will cause his people to persevere. In the history of Israel, this promise is amazing. Why? What happened in the, in the first journey through the wilderness? The entire generation was cut off. None of them, not even Moses, were able to enter the promised land. What does this tell us? We need a greater exodus than what happened from the Israelites out of Egypt. We need a greater deliverer than just Moses who can go in and speak to God and come out and speak to the people. We need a greater fulfillment for this passage to come true. Were there people in the psalmist day who died on pilgrimage to the temple or to the tabernacle? Yes, there were. He's not talking about just a golden age in which no one dies if they're going on a spiritual journey or, or a, a journey that is dedicated for spiritual purpose. He is saying something about the perseverance that God will bring to his people such that none are lost. So the psalmist has been in, in this psalm calling to mind God's promises, God's provision, God's blessing for his people. And therefore, he makes his prayer known to God. In verse 8, he says, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. So this entire psalm, as he's calling to mind the faithfulness of God, as he's expressing his angst to be in God's house, he is making a prayer that God would bring him into his tabernacle and into his temple. Verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And here's the phrase that to me indicates it's very likely that it would be David, or it would be very fitting rather if David is the psalmist. The psalmist says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Though the psalmist may be King David, he has considered these blessings of favor among men, the elsewhere or the tents of the wickedness, as being far inferior to the blessings of God, such that he uses a phrase, even if I was the doorman, it would be enough. I want you to picture, if it is David, how fitting and how instructive this phrase is. The king over the entire nation, who had not only all of the gold tribute from his people, but also the gold and silver tribute from the surrounding nations, who not only had a palace, but also had a place of honor among all the tribes, and was received and acknowledged by all, and was given... uh, Almost praise, honor, fealty, virtue. People would come up and they would kneel before him, showing their respect to his office and his opinion and his his position. He says, I would rather be someone who has to open the door for people in God's house than to be a king here in my palace. That's what I think the psalmist is saying. And that's why, to me, it seems very fitting that it would be David. He's saying... It would be better to be in a low position as long as I get to be with God than to be the king of everything apart from being with God. Jesus later taught the same thing. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole earth and loses his soul? 
The answer is quite clear in Jesus' teaching. It doesn't profit a man. It's, it's a great, grand, eternal loss if he does not gain God. We are given such an amazing promise of God's fatherly care here at the end of verse 11 that to me it is, it is so precious because it shapes the way that you can view everything. That God will never withhold anything that is actually good to us. He says in verse 11, I want to read it again, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Are you single and want to be married? Do you, do you want a good thing? He who finds a wife obtains favor from the Lord. Is that a good thing? Amen. It's a good thing. Is it a good thing for you? That's God to decide. He knows whether or not that will be a good thing for you. He knows whether or not that new job that you're seeking will be a good thing for you. So what happens when you don't get the good thing that you think is going to be great for your life, that's going to transform your life? You can trust this verse. God is not going to withhold things that are good for you. The trouble is we often think things are good for us and they're actually going to destroy us. In fact, that's one of the greatest dangers in life is being laden down with seemingly good things but not having the great thing, which is God. That's what he, he's saying here in this passage. He would rather be in God's house than have amazingly, quote-unquote, good things that are actually distractions outside. God will never withhold from you, Christian, something that is for your good. What an amazing promise. So everything I have said about what I see in this psalm, everything that the psalmist has said in extolling the virtues and blessings of the tabernacle and the temple, all of them are wonderful in the temporary dispensation of God's grace that he gave in the administration of the covenants through Moses and through the kings. However, all of these things are not able to be fulfilled as we've seen over and over again by a literal physical temple or a literal physical tabernacle. The promises are just too great for that to be the case. Remember, think about how large, even at the time of this writing, the nation of Israel would have been. They would have been in the millions of people and there's no building on the earth that can fit millions of people, even to today. There's no structure in the world that can fit millions of of people. So blessed are those who dwell in your house can't come true unless the house changes its scope and fulfillment. Indeed, throughout the centuries in Israel's history, there were times where the tabernacle or the temple were either taken away or they faded away. It's very interesting to me about Moses' tabernacle that we don't know where it went, that the scripture doesn't record what happened to it. We know about the temples, certain of them were destroyed. The Babylonians and the Assyrians sacked and took away the goods of the temple. But for the tabernacle, Moses' tabernacle, it sort of just fades away from the scripture. It doesn't actually, we don't actually know what took place. The Ark of the Covenant, the reason there are, you know, the quest for the Holy Grail or the search for the Ark of the Covenant is because we don't know what, what happened. But the point isn't that we don't know what happened to these. We know from the New Testament that these were shadows, that these were types of the thing which was to come. 
Even at the time of Christ, when Christ was about to come to his people, the people of Israel still saw the temple as a place in which they would meet with God and a place through which God would fulfill his promises. That the tabernacle and temple were not just places to come to God, but that from the tabernacle, God would usher blessing to the nation. If you remember Ezekiel's prophecy, there's a river which comes forth from the temple and fills the whole earth, right? The point is that God is saying something about how he fulfills his promises. He fulfills his promises by issuing them forth from his temple. That is the the history of Israel's relationship with the tabernacle and temple. The people who long for God's presence, even at the time of Christ, even after a temporary restoration of the exile, even with just a slightly restored set of ruins of the temple, the people of Israel still went to the temple to meet with God. We hear in Luke 2, two amazing things about a man and a woman. It's interesting to me that they are both aged, and it's interesting that God in his sovereignty and and providence has called there to be a man and a woman who were there at the tabernacle. I think it's highly significant to me. It seems like a little micro picture of an Adam and an Eve who are there waiting And Simon, who is there, who has been given a promise that he would not die until he saw the Lord's salvation, he had such a great expectation and understanding of what the temple was that he went into the temple in the Holy Spirit. Now, to me, this is not describing just a unique event for Simon. Um, He went into the the temple expectantly. That is to say, he was filled with the promises of God such that he went up in the Holy Spirit. He went into the temple in expectation to see God's salvation. And upon seeing Jesus Christ, Simeon was satisfied. This is the the famous phrase which becomes every Christmas for us a reading and or a song. Now you are letting your servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. That as Simeon looked at Jesus Christ in the temple, he saw what he was waiting for. For day in and day out, Simeon had been in the temple, but when Jesus is in the temple, Now Simeon is satisfied. Remember the longing of this psalmist is, I want to go to God's temple. And Simeon is there, he's in the temple, and he's not satisfied. He sees Jesus Christ even as a babe, and he says, I'm satisfied. The exact same thing happens with Anna. She was a widow and devoted herself to prayer and supplication in the temple. And as soon as she hears about God's salvation in Jesus Christ, she changes her entire ministry. She was devoted to praying and worshiping and interceding for Israel, looking for Israel's consolation. But when she sees Jesus Christ, it says that she went and began to speak to all of them. I I think actually, although it doesn't say it explicitly, I think she actually started to leave the temple and went on little evangelistic trips around the temple to begin to say to the people who are still coming to the temple, actually, there's one who's been born. We've heard that the Messiah is now here. 
You see, when Jesus Christ comes into the temple, the people who were in the temple looking for God recognize him as their supreme joy and treasure. Both Simeon and Anna saw in Christ the fulfillment of all of God's promises, even though the earthly temple around them was still being built. Herod was, at the time of the Lord Jesus, trying to build a temple. This is so important for our reading of the New Testament. Why? Because as we see through the rest of the New Testament, Herod's still working on his temple. And they reject the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus alludes to this. He, pointing to the temple, says, tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. We hear at the beginning of John that Jesus came and in the incarnation he tabernacled among God's people. That he dwelt in his flesh. That God was in Jesus Christ. That the Son of God was present to his people. And as he moved about Israel, he was calling them to him. He was calling them to himself. And then he makes a prophecy about what the real temple is. Jesus prophesied, destroy destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John goes on to say he was not speaking about the temple, but the temple of his body. And then he goes on to say, John says, that after the resurrection, his disciples remembered what he said. After dying on the cross, we know that Jesus did indeed raise himself from the dead, and that as he was raised from the dead, he began to draw to himself a grand, wonderful new temple. So seeing this psalm through the eyes of the Gospels, through the lens or the perspective of the Gospels, we see that actually the longing of the psalmist isn't for the temple. The longing of the psalmist is for the true temple, which is Jesus Christ. The psalmist wants to be with God, not with a bunch of stones. That's what he's looking for and asking for. Only in Jesus Christ do we find our great fulfillment, the longing of our soul, the thing which causes our our spirit to have joy and peace. That is found in Jesus Christ, nowhere else. You see, it's not coming to 1444 Darst that satisfies the longing of your soul. It's not in a few weeks going to 1645. Do we meet with God in these buildings? Yes. Are these the temples? No, they're not the temple. Jesus is the temple, and the New Testament says that we are being built into that temple. Only in Jesus Christ can we dwell with him and sing to one another. As Ephesians 5 says, we sing to one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's like in the church, God has taken the foreshadowing of David's tent of singers and musicians, and he's now redone it in Jesus Christ's church. Now by faith, those who put their trust in Christ are now coming to him as the living cornerstone and are being built up into a spiritual house. Uh, 1 Peter 2 tells us this. Now, through the church, Christ is now filling the whole earth with his kingdom. Do you remember that river which comes out of the temple, Ezekiel's temple? Now that's taking place through the church. God is sending his spirit into the world through the plain, normal acts of service that Christians 
do in sharing his gospel and sharing the light and love of Jesus Christ. So as she worships weeks by week by week, his death and resurrection, that which the altar foreshadowed, is proclaimed and put forth such that he is being acknowledged for everything that he has done through Jesus Christ. What we are about to do here in just a minute is the grand fulfillment of everything that was foreshadowed by the table of the shewbread or the show the showbread. Everything about eating with God and dwelling with God is all summed up in our fellowship with Jesus Christ. So this is my aim this morning, is that seeing these amazing promises that none would fall by the way, that, that the psalmist could have joy in God's presence, that seeing that these grand fulfillments have only taken place through Jesus Christ and in him, that we who've been given the fulfillment of what this psalmist was longing for, that we would not neglect the precious benefits of being in God's people. And that's much more than just coming to church, right? What I believe the psalmist is talking about is he's saying, I want to dwell with God and by extension, all of God's people. As he says, blessed are those, not blessed is me when I, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Brothers and sisters, you have been called to become a living stone. You have been called to put yourself in connection with the living cornerstone next to other stones. And it is God's grand pleasure to fill his people with the Holy Spirit. Don't think of yourself as a dead stone. You're supposed to be a new living stone. Don't think of yourself as a common stone. You are a chosen stone for God's temple. It's very interesting the care that the people who built the temple used when they were choosing stones. God has made you into something wonderful and he's making you and me and we together into a place in which he would dwell. That's what this psalmist is really longing for, is to meet with God, with God's people. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grand promises of scripture. We pray that you would open up our eyes to the high calling that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that you would allow us to have high notions of what you will do through your people. We pray, Lord, that we would be the sort of people that you are pleased to dwell among. And Father, I ask that by your grace, you would transform us into the, the kinds of people who uh, are chosen for honorable use, that, that your house would be glorious and that there would be those who you are drawing to yourself who come and who find you and experience you through us. That is our great and audacious prayer. It is for Christ's sake and his glory and honor that we ask these things. Amen.